0: Welcome to Soulways. I'm Carl Magruder. Today's show is part of our How to Beat Cancer Even If It Kills You series. Today we take on oncologists, cancer physicians, and why they are like economists, which is to say generally optimistic regardless of the evidence until they are utterly despairing and not to be taken too seriously either way. You've seen it in the movies and television a hundred times. Our hero, having been ill, has undergone a battery of tests. In their medical provider's office, they say, Give it to me straight, doc. The physician then says, I'm sorry, there's no cure. The best we can do is try to keep you comfortable. It's time to get your affairs in order, and maybe take that trip to the Poconos that you've been planning. Well, in real life, that conversation is almost never as direct as we imagine it. One remarkable exception that I recall involved family friends in their late 50s. When the husband started acting funny, they thought it was male menopause. It turned out to be an aggressive glioblastoma brain tumor. Despite their fear, their desperation, and their feeling of life incompleteness, they had been planning their retirement together, As they looked at the glio on scans with the neurosurgeon, the wife asked, Would a surgery cure him so the cancer is gone and we can grow old together? I'm afraid not, the surgeon told her. Will it be an easy recovery from surgery? Given where the tumor is? No, the surgeon said. Will it buy him some time? She asked. Probably not much, and it would be taken up with medical appointments, tests, and procedures. Then she asked, Would you do it, doctor, if it was your husband? After a pause, the surgeon took her glasses off and wiped them with her lab coat. I wouldn't, she said. I'd take him home and make the most of the time we have left. And that's what they did. They made a really beautiful life completion journey together with their friends, their students, and their son. I remember this story because the rigorous questioning gives us the exception that proves the rule, which is that aggressive ongoing cancer treatment is presented as though it's the only reasonable choice. This strengthens the sense that we are doing treatment so that the cancer will go away entirely and the person who has cancer will live for years and die of something else. Like Alice in Wonderland, we are tumbling down the rabbit hole without even realizing that's what it is. I cannot count how many times I have heard a person fighting cancer express anger and a sense of betrayal when they found out, almost always after having had their life taken over by cancer treatment and the attendant symptoms, that their cancer was incurable, even though this was medically beyond question months ago, or even at the time of diagnosis. Early in my palliative care career, I met a man whose cancer was back. He was furious when the palliative care physician told him that his cancer had been incurable as soon as it had been discovered. They'd found the lung cancer after his arm had broken while he was swinging a golf club because his bones were so fragile, having already been eaten up with a cancer that had metastasized from the lungs. The five-year survival rate for metastatic lung cancer is minuscule. When it was discovered, the cancer was incurable, but he'd just learned this days before when his oncologist had said the devastating phrase, there's nothing more we can do for you. That's not a phrase we use in palliative care. We believe that care is ongoing, whether or not the disease process can be arrested. What did I do all that treatment for? He asked. He bought himself some time with the itching and weight loss, nausea, radiation, burns, loss of taste, etc. But he'd spent most of that time in doctor's offices and feeling miserable with chemotherapy side effects. Thinking he would be cancer-free at the end of this ordeal, he'd postponed, seriously thinking about his mortality and doing the life completion work he might have done if his oncologist had spoken directly with him in the first place. From my point of view, he'd been robbed of the incredibly rich time of spiritual growth that is possible when we're confronted with our own mortality and the question, what really matters? So why did his oncologist fail to talk straight with him from the beginning? That is to say, why is the oncologist that guano crazy? It's pretty simple, really oncologists are compulsive gamblers. Question. What's the difference between a doctor and God? Answer. God doesn't play doctor. Seriously, though, think back to your studies in human development and the week you spent on the behaviorists. You read about Pavlov's dog and B.F. Skinner's rats. One of Skinner's experiments was to put a little lever in a rat's cage, which provided a food pellet every time a rat pressed the lever. You leave that going for a week or two, and then you stop giving pellets when the rat hits the lever. The rat hits it a few more times, and then wanders off to polish the silver, read the latest from Oprah's book club, or whatever else it is that rats get up to. This is called operant conditioning learning. B.F. Skinner also did the mirror image of this experiment, dropping a rat into a box with an electrified floor. When the panicked rat accidentally ran into the lever trying to get away from the shocks, the current was turned off. These rats learned very quickly to hit that lever when dropped into the electrified box to avoid punishment. This is negative reinforcement. Subsequent behaviorists experimented with a different treatment for the rats called a variable ratio reinforcement schedule. Same lever, same food pellets, but this time the food pellet comes out randomly. Sometimes when the rat hits the lever, it gets a pellet, but many times it doesn't. It might get three in a row, and then none for a while, and then every other. Then you stop the food pellets altogether the rat will hit the lever a few times without getting a pellet. Then it will hit it some more. In fact, weeks after the lever has failed to deliver any food pellets, the rat will still go over and whack it occasionally just to see if it is going to get lucky. Now that rat, the one that keeps on trying, that's the oncologist rat. Cardiologists, nephrologists, and pulmonologists, that's heart doctors, kidney doctors, and lung doctors, are rats from the control batch. They are much more able to give an accurate prognosis of the seriousness of a given condition, its probable disease process, and outcome than oncologists are. But that's because they treat diseases that behave somewhat predictably. They have interventions which work fairly reliably, giving a predictable amount of benefit. If the heart is not functioning well, and we put in a porcine valve, now the heart functions better. There's a cause and effect that's fairly linear. Comparatively, oncology is a land of mystery, conjecture, superstition, and magic. To be sure, oncologists see plenty of cancer which can be cured. In the magical land of oncology, cured doesn't mean what it means everywhere else in the universe, but it is still a lot better than not cured. Although most of the decrease in cancer deaths can be attributed to consumer safety removing carcinogens from a host of things, and people smoking less, most cancer is curable. The problem is, when the curing cancer pellets stop coming, a PET scan shows increased cancer activity after a round of chemotherapy, for instance, oncologists remain optimistic that if they keep pressing that lever, another chemo, some radiation, an experimental drug trial, they will eventually get a big, green, tasty pellet in the form of cancer remission, though they'd settle for just slowing the cancer down. That's where some of the miscommunication comes in when the oncologist says that a treatment is working. They may mean that the tumor is taking longer to double in size than it would without treatment, but it is still doubling in size. Regardless, they keep pressing the lever, keep coming up with more cancer treatments, and keep billing your insurance for them. The reason that they think that a cure is just around the corner is that every once in a while after the lever has not had any effect, a big green food pellet does come tumbling down the oncologist's chute variable reinforcement occurs. Cancers thought to be incurable do go into remission. Sometimes it's a fifth-line chemo that unexpectedly works. The probability of chemotherapy working tends to decrease with each subsequent medicine. Sometimes it's hard to say what has caused the cancer to stop advancing. This is known as spontaneous remission, or a miracle. High stakes and lack of control are the conditions that lead to superstitious behavior. That's why baseball players, sailors, and actors are so superstitious. Cancer creates a perfect storm for encouraging superstitious behavior, regardless of evidence. This affects those with cancer and their physicians. Like other compulsive gamblers, oncologists occasionally do get lucky, which keeps them keeping on. The problem is that they are gambling with your money, your well-being. You have to turn your life into an endless series of chemotherapy, radiation, or surgical appointments, frequently all three. You have to deal with the itching, nausea, weight loss, hair loss, libido loss, appetite loss, radiation burns, peripheral neuropathy, pain, and post-traumatic stress disorder. That's not hyperbole. The oncologist does not suffer the predictable effects of cancer treatment, so why not keep chasing that elusive pellet? In fact, studies show that when oncologists do get cancer themselves, they tend to take substantially less treatment for it than they routinely order for their patients. They know when the odds are stacked against them. The oncologist not only doesn't have to suffer through your cancer treatment, but they actually get to bill for it. It's as though you've dropped an oncologist rat into a cage with a lever that turns off electric current, but that current is in the cage next door, where the rodent with cancer is dancing around like a rat on a hot tin roof, getting the shocks. How long does it take the oncologist rat in the cage with the lever to figure out that the lever will stop the suffering of his neighbor rat, especially if the lever simultaneously gives, or might give, him and his whole medical entity a food pellet reward? In too many cases, the answer is never. So what should a cancer patient do, you ask? If you have had some cancer treatment that hasn't kicked the cancer's butt, if your cancer is in more than one part of your body, if the phrase stage 4 has been used, or if the treatment is causing symptoms that are negatively impacting your quality of life, request a palliative care consult a palliative care consult. If your oncologist tells you that you don't need palliative care, go ask somebody who is not high on food pellets. Try your primary care provider or a hospitalist or a nurse. Generalists tend to be realists. A palliative care team will consist of a social worker, nurse, chaplain, and a physician or nurse practitioner. They are expert at symptom management, but more than that, they are experts at person-centered care. This includes talking straight to you in terms that even somebody like me with no medical training can understand. They answer questions. They care about your family. A typical first palliative care consult might last for an hour. When is the last time a doctor stayed in the room with you for an hour? They want to know what your goals are and what matters to you. They are curious about who you are and where you've been. They will scratch your dog between the ears. They believe in massage and acupuncture and trips to France. They also believe in effective cancer treatment that you make an informed decision about. You do not have to give up any options to talk to the palliative care team. They nurture hope, perhaps with a new and clearer focus. Now, in the spirit of a disclaimer, I have heard that there are some oncologists who are not that guano-crazy. My particular position in the healthcare constellation has not put me in locations where I would be likely to encounter many of these enlightened oncologists, and my first repeated experience with oncology during my clinical pastoral education was with the doctor who might have inspired the joke... Question. Why do they nail down coffin lids? Answer. To make the chemotherapy stop. One of the infusion nurses at that hospital tearfully told me that she felt like her intention to help people had been turned into something sinister as she mixed up chemotherapies that didn't help but harmed. She was suffering a moral injury. I am grateful for this particular oncologist because his pellet addiction sparked my interest in palliative care. Should you trust your oncologist? Of course, they're on your side, and they are fierce warriors in the fight against cancer. You're partnered with them, but this should feel like a partnership where you're given the information you need to make informed decisions for yourself and for your life and for your family. Since you don't know what you don't know, it's a bit of a challenge. That's the reason for the palliative care consult, the classic second opinion. There is a natural antipathy between palliative care and oncology and a disappointing number of institutions, including quite prestigious ones, so you'll have to be proactive in your request for the consult. Your journey is yours. Grab the bull by the horns. Ride your own ride. Find the hidden jewels that come with seeing the world as it is, with understanding life as an ultimate gift that is finite. Accept impermanence. Learn the deep wisdom of the serenity prayer. That we might have the serenity to accept the things we cannot change, the courage to change the things we can, and the palliative care consult that helps us to know the difference. Amen. This has been Soulways with Carl Magruder. Please feel free to send emails or voice files to us at soulwaysconversations at gmail. We may use your submission on the podcast. Thanks again for listening. May you be both blessed and blessing as you move through your week. Soulways is a production of Civic Light Projects. Our episode was produced by Carl Magruder and Marta Rusick. Wind chimes sound effects created by Jonathan Shaw, and our theme was created by Carl Magruder. This episode of Soulways is sponsored by Friends General Conference. For over 120 years, FGC has nurtured the spiritual lives of friends through programs like the annual FGC gathering, the Ministry on Racism program, the Spiritual Deepening program, Quaker books, and much more. To learn more, visit fgcquaker.org. That's f g c q u a k e r . o r g.